the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Hear the language of Jesus. In my Father's house are many mansions, are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. All right, he's using marital language. Uh, He's saying, I am like the groom. The church of Jesus Christ is like the bride. I'm going away to my father's house, to heaven. I'm preparing a place for you. But then after time, I'm going to come back for you. You're my bride. I'm going to take you to be with me forever. So he's talking in, in these terms to let them know. In today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that God is always taking care of you. When times in this life get hard, it can feel like God is very far away. It can feel like you're praying into a nothingness that no one can hear. But the Bible says otherwise. God is always near, working in and through our situations, working all things for our good. Even when we pass from this world into the next, For followers of Jesus, Christ is preparing a place for each person to spend eternity with Him and His Father. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John, chapter 14, as he continues his message, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The place I'm going, you can't come. Not now, but he adds there, you will come later. And when he says this, it naturally generates some questions here. Peter pipes up and he says, Lord, where are you going? And then Thomas taps out and he says, not only do we not know where you're going, we don't know the way to get there. Of course, Thomas has a lot of doubts anyway. That's kind of his nature. But they're asking them, they're asking Jesus questions because they don't understand. Wait a minute, wait, you're going away. We can't come with you. We can come later. Where are you going? What's up with all of this? And again, Jesus is trying to give them a preview. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend back into heaven. And, and, he, and he's, and he's going to leave them. Now, he's not going to leave them comfortless. In fact, the Bible says that's why God then brings the Holy Spirit so that we are not left without a comforter, the Holy Spirit. But he says, as far as me being with you, Jesus says, I'm going back to heaven. And I'm not going to be with you much longer, but you'll be able to come to where I am. Now, Jesus uses, in John chapter 14, wedding language. It, It escapes us from our Western eyes and ears. But in John chapter 14, first few verses, Jesus is using an analogy of a wedding that his disciples would have understood better than us, probably. And, and because most of us are not familiar with ancient Jewish wedding ceremonies, 
I'm going to unpack this a little bit, the first couple of verses from chapter 14. But before I do that, again, notice the context, the flow of chapter 13 into 14. At the end of chapter 13, Peter makes this bold assertion, all right, that I'm, I'm going to be with you to the very end, and, and he's, you know, he's, he's got good intentions, but, but the guy is, uh, he, he kind of speaks first and acts first and then thinks later. And when he says all this and makes all these bold assertions, I'm going to be with you. The other gospels say that, you know, they all might deny you, but I never will. And then Jesus has to turn to him and say, listen, Peter, I got news for you. Before sunrise, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. You're, you're going to deny even knowing me three times before sunrise. So now you have to remember the other disciples sitting, hearing this conversation between Jesus and Peter would naturally become discouraged because they're thinking, well, if Peter, one of the three who belong to Jesus's inner circle, Peter, James, and John, if Peter is going to deny you, then all of us probably will, which in effect ends up happening. But in order to comfort them, John 14, verse 1 is when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. And so he wants to comfort them. He's like, listen, it's, it's all going to be okay. I needed to kind of set Peter in the right place there. Uh, proud Peter needed a little, a little talking to. But for all of you, just don't be troubled, don't be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then here's where he launches into this wedding analogy using kind of wedding language. It's verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14. I want you to look at your Bibles with me. This is where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, in my Father's house are many mansions. If you have an NIV or ESV, I like the translation a little bit better. It says, in my father's house are many rooms, okay? Americans trip on the word mansion. And, um, and so now we think, oh, oh, so when we get to heaven, everybody's going to be living like the fresh prince of Bel Air. No, that's not what the text actually implies, okay? And by the way, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel has done a lot of damage to a lot of people. It's a false doctrine, okay? Jesus is not saying when you get up, you know, to heaven, then everybody's going to be living in a beautiful mansion. This is wedding language, okay? Don't make it materialistic in your head as typically Americans tend to do. You know, everything is relative. I read this statistic about the houses we live in. If you if you live in a house, a house or an apartment here in America, you're better off than most of, of the people around the world. I read this statistic that in Australia, Australia is the number one. Australia has, proportionally speaking, um, the largest houses. Okay, Australians live large. Um, but America is number two next to Australia. The average size American home in America second to Australia, larger than homes in any other part of the world, on average. And in the statistic I read, you could get 11 average size homes in China, 11 in one average size home in America. 11 average size homes in China in one average size home in America. So everything's relative. We're very blessed. Don't be thinking when you get to heaven... There's going to be a mansion just for you with a gold-plated door. Um, 
he's using again here wedding language. And what Jesus is basically saying is, my dad's house, meaning heaven, is big enough for anybody and everybody who so wills to come. There's room in my father's house for you. And as he speaks here using wedding language, I want to share with you uh, two important aspects of an ancient Jewish wedding. There were two phases, two parts to an ancient Jewish wedding that was separated by one year. There was the betrothal period followed by the marriage celebration. The betrothal period followed by the marriage celebration. And these two things were separated by one year. And so let me break it down for you. Here's what happened in the betrothal period. Now, as many of you know, most weddings uh, among the Jews in ancient times were arranged. Um, Dads would get together and they would make a contract with each other based on the, the one dad who had a boy and the other dad who had a girl. And they would start when the kids were as young as two years of age making contract negotiations. And, and so at any point between usually two or when they became maritable age, which in those days was rather young, uh, in their mid-teens, often, not always, um, dads would make contractual arrangements. That's the way a marriage would be. It would be arranged. And so the dad of the groom would offer the dad of the bride uh, something valuable, It could be livestock, it could be silver, it could be gold, it could be produce, it could be land. And um, depending on uh, what the bride's father um, agreed to, the contract became binding and a bride price was paid. It's otherwise known as a dowry. A bride price was paid to the father of the bride-to-be. Now, um, I've told this story a long time ago. But about, I don't know how long ago now, it's been about uh, 10 years, 8 years ago when, when my daughter Lindsay went with us on one of our trips to Israel and she was uh, in her late teens. Um, we were out walking in the, in the streets of Jerusalem and this uh, Arab Israeli pulled up in a, in a black Mercedes, rolled down the window and said to me, I will give you 30 camels for your daughter right now. I'm not making this up, true story. And I was like, what? Excuse me? 30 camels. Now, I found out from some people that that is a boatload of money. He said, 30 camels I give for your daughter right now for her hand in marriage. I said, you got to be kidding me, right? No, I'm serious. 30. I said, no. 50. No, I, no, I didn't say that. I didn't try to negotiate at all. Anyway, we walked away. But even still today, there's the attempt to try to um, you know, exchange a bride price in, in order to make a contractual arrangement here. So in these ancient times, uh, this is how it typically worked. And then when the, when the bride and groom-to-be became of maritable age, there would be a ceremony and vows would be exchanged. This is all part of the betrothal period. Vows would be exchanged. But there was to be no sexual intimacy this is very different from, you know, our Western culture where there's an engagement ring, then there's the wedding ring, and then, you know, you consummate the marriage. In, in the ancient Jewish times, this is, this is the protocol. There was an arranged marriage. 
There was a bride price exchanged when they became maritable age. There were vows that were then exchanged before God in the presence of a company. No sexual intimacy. And then here's what would happen. The groom would then go off for one year back to his father's house. And he would build an addition onto his father's house, a room. During this one year, the Old Testament tells us he was exempt from military duty. And during that one year, the bride prepared herself to leave her father's house. And during this betrothal, it was binding. It could only be dissolved by divorce. Even though they had not physically, sexually consummated the marriage, that's how binding this was. So the groom goes off for a year, exempt from military duty, builds a, a, a room onto his father's house. In those days, it was typical for three, maybe even four generations to live under the same roof. And after that one year, the groom would come back to get his bride. And thus enters the marriage celebration. The groom would come back for his bride, and then there would be a huge feast, usually a seven-day feast, a festival. And you would invite guests, and they would all come. And for seven days, you would just have this lavish party celebrating, after this year, the marriage between this groom and his bride. And it was then, as part of the marriage celebration, that the bride and the groom would would sexually consummate, physically consummate the marriage union. Mazel tov. All right? So it's in these two phases here. The betrothal period, the marriage celebration. Hear the language of Jesus. In my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. All right? He's using marital language. Uh, he's saying, I am like the groom. The church of Jesus Christ is like the bride. I'm going away to my father's house, to heaven. I'm preparing a place for you. But then after time, I'm going to come back for you. You're my bride. I'm going to take you to be with me forever. So he's talking in in these terms to let them know, listen, I'm going to go away, but like a groom goes away to prepare a place, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you might be also. Please listen to me on this, folks. We are right now in the betrothal period. Do you get this? Jesus has died for our sins on a cross. He was buried three days later. He rose from the dead. Then he ascended back into heaven and he's preparing a place for us. It's the betrothal period. And he's going to come again for his bride, for the church to take us, to be with him forever. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse seven, which says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for the soon return of Jesus? Whenever that might be. Are you ready for him? You can be. If you say to me, I'm not really sure. Well, this brings us full circle back to our text of John 14, 6. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. The way you get to heaven, the way you get to God, is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the way. By faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what he means when he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Quickly, I just want to break it down. What does he mean here when he says, I am the way? What does he mean when he says, I am the truth? What does he mean when he says, I am the life? Well, let's start with the first one. He says, I am the way. 
You might say, well, wait a minute, Pastor G. I was told that there were multiple ways to heaven, that all paths lead to God. Well, you were told wrong. There are not multiple ways to God. There's one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is the way to God. Jesus Christ alone is the way to heaven. Now, I can hear, because I've heard it over the years, I can hear the criticism. This is where skeptics will pipe up and say, that's the problem with you Christians. You're so narrow-minded and you're so bigoted as to say that there's only one way. There's only one way to be saved. All right, well, let me ask you a question. What if tomorrow they were to discover one cure for all cancers, one pill? Would you say that it's narrow-minded and bigoted just because there's one way to be cured? Or let's say you're on a plane and it's going down, it's about to crash, and you were offered one parachute. Would you say that that's narrow-minded or bigoted? Or let's say you're in a burning building and there's only one door to get out so you can be saved. Would you say, hold on, are there any other options here? Are there other doors? Of course not. It's not narrow-minded or bigoted. The opportunity to be saved is what God offers for all people. I'm just thankful that God made a way. Jesus happens to be the way, but I'm just thankful that God even made a way possible for us to be saved. And so it's not narrow-minded or bigoted to believe that in, in what Jesus said. He is the way. He's the way to God. He's the only way to God. The only reason why people might believe that such an exclusive claim is narrow-minded or bigoted is because for two reasons. Number one, they don't understand their own desperate condition. And number two, they do not understand the mercy of God. When you get those two things, how desperate we all are, how we're all sinners, how we all need a Savior, when you understand your desperate condition and you understand the mercy of God, then you will be thankful You won't sit back and say that's narrow-minded any more than you would say one cure for cancer, one parachute to rescue me, or one door to get me safely out of a burning building is narrow-minded or bigoted. God has made a way possible for all who would believe and receive. Jesus said, I am the way to be saved. Secondly, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the truth. You say, wait a minute. I was told truth was individualized and truth is relative. You know, you've, you've, you've heard people, as I've heard recently, talk about my truth, your truth, our truth, as if we can decide what truth is. And if you were told that, you were told wrong. Jesus is the truth. He is the standard of truth. He is the source of all truth. And this should be comforting to us, quite frankly, because we live in an age where you can't even figure out what's true anymore. What is reality? With all the spin and all the hype and all the mudslinging and all the conjecture, the attacks, it's hard to know anymore what to believe. It's hard to know know what is reality. You know, some event happens and, and 20, you know, news agencies show up to record the event and then they 
they editorialize about it and they contradict each other about it. And you just throw up your hands and, and you end up saying, I don't even know what to believe. I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know what's right and wrong. I can't make heads or tails out of any of this. The bottom line is, listen, in all of the craziness of the world and all the confusing things that we hear from time to time, Jesus is the ultimate source of truth. We've got to press into him. Jesus said in John eighteen thirty seven, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So we need to listen to Jesus. He said, listen to me. He's the source of truth. Not Gandhi, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Joseph Smith, not Muhammad, not Mary Baker Eddy. Jesus is the source of truth. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. And then he adds there also, I am the life. You say, wait a minute, I was told my life is in my hands. I'm in charge of my life. I'm the captain of my life. It's all about me. Well, you were told wrong. This thinking was perpetuated by Gautama Buddha a few hundred years before Christ, when Buddha said this, quote, no one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. That's a very self-centered view on life. But the truth of the matter is that the Bible teaches Jesus is the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the giver of life. Life is a gift. The very reason that you're breathing right now is because God has enabled you to breathe, to give you life. And what he offers us is not just life biologically, okay? Well, there's a Greek word for life, bios. That's where we get our English word biology, the study of life, meaning the study of natural life, the study of physical life. That is from God, yes. But what Jesus offers is even greater than that because the word used here for life is a different Greek word, and it's the word zoe. We've talked about this before, and zoe means spiritual life, eternal life, fullness of life even beyond this physical, natural world. Because one day, unless the Lord returns beforehand, we're all going to die. And we're all going to disintegrate and go back to dust. But the moment we die, if you're in Christ, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. And that's eternal life. That's being with Him forever and ever. But you have to know Him. And you have to believe in Him. And you have to commit your life to Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Are you willing to humble yourself today and to acknowledge your need for a Savior and to believe that Jesus is that only Savior? The way that God provided for us to have our sins forgiven and He opened access to heaven through Jesus Christ. It's by faith alone in Christ alone as the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we get to God. That's how we get to heaven. Do you know him today? Have you surrendered your life to his lordship? Have you committed your heart to Jesus Christ? Because I want to promise you, based on the authority of Scripture, that when you do that, you can have your sins forgiven and you can know that you know you're going to go to heaven when you die. And I know many of you watching are already believers. You've trusted Christ as your Savior. But I'm sure there are many of you who have not made that decision. I want to invite you today to make that decision. None of us knows when our day is numbered. When we die, the Bible says all the days ordained for us are written in His book before one of them came to be. God has an ordained number of days for us. And because you never know what tomorrow holds, 
it's important you make a decision today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been teaching about Jesus, defining who exactly He is, and why He's so important to you. Jesus is the I Am, and He can change your life. If you have any questions or would like to share a prayer request with us, please contact us. You can reach us by calling 703-771-1500. You can also listen to more teachings in this series by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or just download our mobile app. That way you'll have biblical messages available to listen to whenever you want, wherever you are. We encourage you to continue reading about Jesus yourself as well. You can find Him in every book of the Bible, but we'd be happy to help point you towards specific scripture pertaining to his life and ministry. Just ask when you call. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. We'd love to meet you too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in for this Jesus is the I Am series. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection.